Alright, this is episode 53 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall and co-hosting as always is Tom Major. And this week slash fortnight, we have an episode all about lizards trying to protect their nests from those sneaky snakes that are trying to eat eggs. Mm, Simple yeah. as that. Yeah? That's basically it, isn't it? We um we did salamanders versus plants a couple of weeks ago, and it was really fun. So uh, I just Googled snakes versus lizards. I didn't know what I, what to expect. But um, <laughs> yeah, we got some a, a brace of papers about, as you say, lizards defending their nests from snakes. Cause, um, it was an inspired search, because these papers are fun. Yeah, snakes are menaces, and they love to eat eggs. And uh, why did I say that in such a weird way? <laughs> they love to eat eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh god! Yeah, snakes love to eat eggs, basically, and uh, lizard eggs are particularly delicious, apparently. So, um, mm. yeah, there's some papers here where lizards have found a pretty obvious means of defending their eggs. You know, there's nothing particularly technical about it. They're just getting in the way and being um, obstinate and uh, violent towards snakes, which are trying to eat their babies, which is fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, should we just get into the first paper and just start talking about awesome horned lizards? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's pretty... like I don't think that um, sort of nest defence is really a subject which needs a lot of description. It's pretty obvious. It's no, eggs in nest, which, lizard next yeah. to eggs. Snake comes along, yeah. lizard gets all up in its grill. Yeah, and it's really obvious as to why they would do this. I mean, they want to have their eggs not get depredated by predators and if they do do this then the likelihood is that more of their babies will survive so there's a very clear survival mechanism inbuilt into this behavior yeah but i think we'll get more into the sort of trade-offs in the second paper won't we yes because it's not all just oh just defend some eggs there's some side effects there are some side effects and sometimes you just don't need to bother or you're lazy you know could be lazy yeah i mean to be honest, if I laid one egg, I would probably be really careful with it and guard it. But if I laid like 20 <laughs> eggs, psh, one oh, of them yeah, they'll, they'll make pre- their own way. Way less precious. Yeah, then, you, then you're looking at something like 70 eggs or something. Oh, forget about it. Forget yeah, oh, yeah. Just Whatever. Exactly. So uh, the first paper is by Sherbrooke in 2017, entitled Anti-Predator Nest Guarding by Female Horned Lizards. Iguanian parental care, herpetologica. Hmm. So this is a fun one out of Australia, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think both papers have Australian authors. Um, well, this one only has one author, and it's an Australian. Um, Wait, why am I? Why did I say Australia? It clearly says North America. <laughs> Where have oh, I, I just, got this why information am I just agreeing from? with you like a mindless drone? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Yeah, which, is, North which, Australia, which Australia were you talking about? <laughs> Why have I brought up Australia? The second paper's Australia. Not even, like, there's one person from James Cook, all the other people are from Taiwan or Cambridge. Oh my god, what am I thinking of then? The, the, third, paper, know, the third paper's from Brazil. There's nothing Australian about any of these lizards or anything that we're talking about, bar maybe a couple of authors. Hmm, bar one author, I think. Well... Should we talk right. about these North American lizards then? <laughs> Let's. <laughs> this is going well. Yeah. Two, two, two species of horned lizards. The Texas horned lizard 
not Texas, Australia, Texas uh, in the United States, and the round-tailed horned uh-huh. lizard. Is there um, actually a Texas in Australia? I have no idea. But oh. <laughs> I'm not going to look that up. We're going to move on. Okay. Okay. Uh, so they're the two two main ones this paper's looking at. But there's also a little bit of a little bit of a investigation into the western patch-nosed. Oh my god! I'm completely off piece. I'm just reading random words in no particular order. There's also a little bit of an investigation into greater short-horned lizards. But those guys are a little bit different than the other two because they don't lay eggs. Yeah, a yeah, couple yeah, of yeah. egg laying, so they're defending a nest. And then we've got a third species that wouldn't be defending a, a nest, but maybe defending live-born young. Yes. That was a complete mess, but I'm so hoping for a further said, discussion. Here we're saying, saying <laughs> is we've got, three species, we've got three species of Phrynosoma. Phrynosoma yep. uh, modestum, the round-tailed, uh, Cornutum, the Texas horned, as you said, and then... Um, what was the one with... Uh, Greater Shorthorned. Greater Shorthorned, which is called... Is it Hernandez Eye? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's the one That's the one that gives birth to live young because it's a freak. Uh, it doesn't even lay eggs. I don't know how I got in here, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. So let this one in. Yeah. Um, so there's 22 species of horned lizards in Phrynosoma. So there's Plenty. three of them being studied in this paper. 15 of the species of Phrynosoma, 15 of the species of Phrynosoma, 15 of the species of Phrynosoma are living in America. They're found in America. So um, it's a good thing for Americans to be proud of, I think. Got a high diversity of these strange little lizards, which are kind of like, a, I don't know, they're sort of palm-sized, aren't they? And they're mm. very spiky and, and sort of spiky. round. Yeah. Yeah. Quite an amusing looking beast, really, with good camouflage. They're sort of mottled greys, blacks and browns. And they have some funny defense mechanisms as well. One of them, their first defense mechanism is like an erratic jog. <laughs> so they just like <laughs> run around in short little bursts. An erratic I, jog. I mean, yeah. that's a pretty good good term right there. Yeah. I mean, I coined that myself. So you can use it, but you have to Thank reference you. me every single time. And basically what they do... If they see a predator, they just start like doing little runs and they just run, stop, run, stop, run, stop in like random directions and at like differing distances from the predator. And the idea is that the predator won't be able to focus on where they are because they're running around in such an erratic way. It's just it's too confusing and you just give up. And I mean, we've all had that experience where... Get confused you know, and give up. Just get confused happens, and give up. Happens daily. Well, it's like when you go to one of those Usually not caused by someone erratically jogging. <laughs> Major 2019. You know when you uh, are at one of those restaurants where the food goes past on a conveyor belt and then it suddenly it just goes out of focus and you think, oh no. <laughs> you grab for it and you pick up something completely <laughs> out. It's completely yeah. different. You went for a, a cocktail sausage and now you've got a plate full of deviled eggs. You're de- another, another egg. <laughs> and then people you're with, they think you're weird because you're eating so many eggs. And you're, <laughs> you're too ashamed. You're too ashamed to say anything. The irony. Uh, um, so yeah, uh, if that doesn't work, if the defensive jog doesn't work, they up the ante and then they try and look like a toad. So they puff up. I'm not saying they try and look like a toad. What they do is they puff up and they stand on their little legs. And they In make a similar fashion like two toads and don't yeah. to do. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. I thought might be why some people call them horny toads. I don't know. Because that is a common name for them in America as people call them horny ah. toads. Maybe. 
Anyway, they kind of look like a little spiky boulder when they do that. It's adorable, but if you're a predator, maybe it's slightly intimidating. I can't believe it myself. Well, it's probably more just, I don't want to eat something so spiky that looks uncomfortable, right? Mm, yes. Especially if you're dealing with a with a predator like a snake that can't manipulate its prey with, with fingers and hands. And you're going to be all spiked on the inside. It's going to be unpleasant. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's very true. And then uh, their last resort, if the puffing up and jogging around like a lunatic fails, is they can actually squirt blood out of their eyes. So they, um, the uh, the blood vessels in their eyes are extremely fragile, and um, they basically just increase the blood pressure in their head to such a disgusting extent that blood squirts out of their eyes. Um, and predators don't like it. Apparently, it tastes not very nice if you're a dog or a cat predator, and. Um, yeah, generally just if something's squirting blood out of its eyes, it's really just a bad sign, isn't it? Probably not the best thing to eat. <laughs> so uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, if something that squirted blood at you came round on a little conveyor belt in a restaurant, you would deliberately miss it. Yeah. Deliberately. Unless you, no way. Yeah. Unless you were still aiming for that cocktail sauce, you didn't got it by mistake. <laughs> Worst case this, scenario. This blood splurting <laughs> lizard in your face. Like, oh, oh, no. But in this paper, they did the um, modestum and the cornutum. But Modestum can't actually squirt blood, while the Texas horn lizard Cornutum, they can. So I know which is my favourite. Definitely Easy. squirty, squirty blood boy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty uh, it's pretty unique, isn't it? I can't think of many animals that will squirt blood at you to scare you off. That's a... I mean, that's brave. And actually, this we're talking about parental care, bringing us back onto topic and away yes. from, from blood squirting. Yeah. Um, parental care is actually super, super rare in reptiles, or at least people recording it is super, super rare. It might be more widespread than we know, because it's, you know, tricky to uh, to detect. You have to sit there and watch a reptile get chased by something that might eat its eggs and then see what it does. Um, but the general sort of idea is maybe 1.3% of lizards do it, and maybe 2.8% of snakes do it which are tiny numbers. So it's a big deal when you actually find a species uh, that does practice parental care in reptiles anyway. Yeah, It's exciting as well because it means that you can kind of begin to relate to the vacant expression of a stupid lizard. With a little beady eye staring out at you, occasionally (laughs) squirting blood. I understand you, little squirty blood lizard. Yeah, you just want the best for your young. And that's okay. (laughs) So how do you work out whether they're protecting nests? That's really what we're talking about. How do you there's do only, it? There's only one what way, you... really. Yeah, there is. One, one way ticket. Yeah. The Thunderdome. <laughs> <laughs> two animals enter, one animal leaves. Or in this case, two animals leave because it was done in an ethically suitable way. Or in this they weren't case, actually made to battle. Or in many cases, two animals enter and then like five animals leave because of the successful nest attendance. That's a good point. Yeah, more animals left. Hmm. Well, these, these uh, I didn't realise until quite late on in the paper, but these lizards aren't protecting their eggs for the entirety of the incubation period. There's like a, we can talk about it more later, but they're kind of getting doing it at the start and then they leave. It's, it's important to note they're not actually guarding the nest for the whole time. I think it's just, um, you know, prior, prioritisation. That's you know you can't you can't spend all your time guarding the nest. You've got other stuff to do. You know lizards mm. are busy, so you prioritize when you need to defend it. Job done. Especially because these lizards eat ants, which is very time-consuming prey. Mm. It's like eating rice one grain at a time. 
yeah, that's li- it's 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 pretty much exactly that, except for the mm. braces is slightly meaty and um, moving. Yeah, and moving, and it comes in big nests <laughs> and can fight back. Yeah, pretty scary. Um, mm. Anyway, what did they do? So for the um, Texas horned lizards and the round-tailed lizards, they created a um, enclosure where they had got some a big old outdoor enclosure where they'd got some females laying eggs and um, they basically collected some females they thought would be gravid and then put them in this big um, exhibit and then, uh, yeah, waited for them to lay their eggs. Um, They had, they didn't have a huge amount of lizards. They had nine for the Texas horned lizards and only one of the round tailed lizards because a couple got lost um, oh wait, were they were they in an enclosure or were they outside? The enclosure was uh, to identify whether it's not entirely clear because you would have thought in the enclosure you wouldn't need to radio track them to find them, but they also yeah. radio track them to find them. Yeah. So I think it's the enclosure to make sure they are gravid and to get them all ready to go and put the transmitters on them. Right. Yeah. And then they're released, and then they are tracked down using the radio transmitters. And then the trials begin. And then the trials begin. Yeah. Um, and this... I mean, this is what makes this paper fun, is I, I would not have thought that this was the method that was going to occur. I know. I was, occur, really, but basically, I was really surprised. <laughs> the game plan is, okay, so you've got this lizard. It's out there. It's made a nest. It's having a fine old time. You come along as a researcher. You have a western patch-nosed snake in a tube. Okay, you sort of let the snake go further out of the tube so it's got a sort of bit of mobility, but it's still secured. You can, you know, you still have control of the snake in this tube. You come up to the lizard with its nest, and the snake in the tube. You show the uh, snake, the lizard, and the nest and sort of let it investigate it. And then you record how the, uh, how the lizard reacts to having this, this snake present. Seeing, yeah. seeing what the snake does, seeing what the lizard does, and see what sort of behaviours that motivates. I just... The fact that there's 25% of a snake poking out the end of a tube, and you, <laughs> you're in control of what it does. What must that snake be thinking? Like, oh, uh, oh, I don't know. Oh, gosh, we're going towards a lizard. Oh. <laughs> and, then, and then the lizard gets absolutely livid about it, starts trying to attack you. The researchers are like, just give it a minute. <laughs> They'll sort it out. <laughs> it's like... Snakes like, get, get me out of here. All the back of like, the tube. There's a snake. There's a snake, get him. It's crazy. Can't even imagine it. Oh, proper, yeah. Proper, like, controlled Thunderdome. Um, it's, it's pretty wild because the fun thing is, is it's not like some of the previous Thunderdomes where they've been put in a, like, sterile Thunderdome sort of scenario that doesn't have vegetation and stuff. These are free-ranging lizards. They've got the whole, you know, breadth of behaviours they would in the wild available to them. Yeah. You know, mediated by the fact that the snake happens to be coming out of a tube and there's two people (laughs) filming it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But that aside, this isn't... It's weird and kind of... Well, it it is just weird. But I think it's actually quite a smart way of getting some sort of fun behavioural insights and some useful behavioural insights. It's not just, you know throw this snake into a situation see what the hell happens it is controlled do it for three minutes record it move away yeah 
and then categorize the behaviors that were observed. Yeah, because I think initially when I read that it, they were real snakes and there was two of them, I, I noticed that like, okay, so they've got two snakes here. They don't mention the gender of the snakes. The snakes are different sizes. So there's really going to be quite a lot of variation going on in there. But then also um, the fact that the snake isn't going to approach consistently because, you know, if you're a snake, for the first five trials, you might be like, yeah, I fancy taking on a horned lizard today. This would be a good laugh. But then, <laughs> then for the last five, yeah, the last five, you might be like, oh, I'm a little bit sleepy kind of just want to chill out. I don't really want to go and fight a lizard right now. Oh, God. Oh, a lizard. Ah! So I think it, for some things, like the kind of consistency of approach, a stuffed snake would have potentially been a bit better and a little bit more easy to control. But for the fact that these experiments are three minutes long, I feel like um, one of these horned lizards is going to suss out a stuffed snake pretty quick. So you're probably only going to get the immediate reaction. Yeah. And then, and also but they also, on- they did cut them short where the lizard just left. Like if the les- lizard did. just gave up and left, then all right, 30 seconds, job done. Yeah. Because there's not going to be no subsequent behavior after lizard leaves. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. not all the, you know, they weren't forced to interact for three minutes unless stuff was going on. No. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, basically they did that. And um, yeah, like I said, they had nine Texas horned lizards and one round-tailed horned lizard. Um one of the lizards got eaten, unfortunately, which is a bit of a shame, but that's the way it goes. Um, so they did lose a sample size, a bit of sample size there. And um, yeah, basically, both the um, species of horned lizard exhibited defense of their nests quite consistently when they put the snake in their face. Um, they, but it depends. Yeah, it depends on when they do it. Yeah, what what stage of the whole nesting period it's done. So they split it up into three, pre-nesting, at-nesting, and post-nesting. And you did see differences in behavior between those different stages, right? Yeah, they only really got livid when um, it was during nesting, right? So if they were just mm. had eggs in their belly, not bothered. If they had nested a while ago, not bothered. But if they kind of just laid the eggs in the first few days, that's when they'd react aggressively towards the snake. Yeah. Yeah, there was a little bit of pre-nesting sort of behavior, no sort of active attacks or like charging the snake, headbutting it, uh, open mouth strikes, anything like that. We were recording during the nesting. Um, there were some sort of half defensive things of like lowering the head. So there's the beginnings of sort of defensive behavior, but nothing, nothing dramatic. Nothing like what you see at nesting where the attacks were sort of vigorous and unrelenting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and afterwards, um, they just walked away. They just, they weren't having it. Just left. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so what, what wait, sorry, they, they left when? The post-nesting ones. Oh, yeah, no, they had it. Yeah, so they, they, just, they had had enough. Yeah, well, I, yeah, they had some interesting uh, theories as to why that might be in the um, discussion, didn't they? They said, like, it could be that there's a period during or or just after nesting where there's a lot of, like, after birth and all that kind of stuff still around the scent's quite fresh and that might be what the snakes are hunting down and that might be the reason why they yeah. need to protect the nest for a few days and the other thing was they'd noticed that um after rain the females tended to leave the nests which kind of suggests that perhaps the rain is washing away any odors and that they don't feel the need to defend the nest from snakes because they don't think the snakes will find them that's obviously like not um empirically tested in this paper but it's quite a cool idea it is, and it has that nice sort of, you can see the mechanistic link there. Okay, scent very sort of strong. That elicits some sort of behavior in the uh, horned lizard. That scent dies down because of rain or time. 
the sort of chemical cues are gone, therefore Lizard reacts to that and moves off or doesn't bother doing as aggressive defensive as defensive behavior as uh, when those scents are really sort of geeing it up. Yeah. You know, it, ma- it makes sense that both the parent and predator can be acting on the same cues. Mm. Yeah, it does. It does. It, it, it ties it in quite nicely. You know, the lizard smells something, the snake smells something. The lizard stops smelling it, assumes the snake can't smell it, and leaves. Yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, they also did the trials with the um, Phrynosoma hernandezi, which is the um, viviparous species. So it's giving birth to live young. And in that one, um, they just had Hernandezai in an enclosure, in a big old enclosure, and they just let the snake go in the enclosure. They didn't have it in a tube. They just let the snake bowl around. And um, <laughs> the mother didn't really care at all. Well, oh, one, yeah. wasn't fussed. The babies were just like whipping all over the place. She wasn't keeping any tabs on them. The babies had no intention of staying near their mum. They were all just kind of wandering around. The snake was just like, what's happening? Um yeah. yeah. And then it ended. There was nothing. Yeah. So um, the snake, I think it could be that the snakes don't eat young. They just eat eggs. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Or it's just, you know, a scenario that it's not particularly keen to eat something. Yeah. But the thing, the take home message is the mother was like, you know, whatever kids, you're born, get out of my face. Right. You would expect to see some sort of defensive behavior or some sort of reaction to the snake. So, yeah. okay, maybe this one is lacking that sort of parental care. Yeah. Like yeah. a regular lizard. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so interesting in the um, discussion, they, Derbrook says that um, Shine had four different categories of female defensive behavior in lizards. And um, yeah, he said that he didn't really think that any of Shine's four categories adequately described what they saw here. Uh, he said that Female remains with eggs after deposition and might defend them against predator or pathogens. Didn't quite describe it because it was only temporary, but I actually disagree. I think that perfectly describes what's going on here. I think, yeah, the female remains with the eggs after deposition and defends them against predators. That's exactly what's happening. It's just happening temporarily. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I think if that. you start making these, if you start excluding species that defend the nest for a limited time period, you start getting rid of other species too and then you're saying that they're not uh defending against predators i mean that's the whole king cobra thing they don't sit there until they hatch they sit there for a while and then they leave so it might be a similar sort of chemical cue uh scenario so i think i mean that still counts that's still some level of parental care isn't it i think you just broaden that category and it covers it yeah i agree yeah unless of course the shine 1988 paper describes these categories and it specifically says um, that it's defending them all the way until they hatch. It might say that, yeah. yeah. But I think, yeah, if you were criticizing it for that categories. reason, you should be specific because I didn't get that impression. But yeah, maybe so. Hmm. I'm ready to be corrected on that. Yeah. Yeah. Ready to be corrected. Long story short, these lizards, they do defend their nests. They defend them sort of immediately after laying the eggs and uh, they'll batter a snake's face if they have to. Yeah. And um, like you said at the beginning, Ben, I think uh, 
the kind of take home message is that there's not a lot of reports of parental care in iguanian lizards and mm. it's not it might be because it's rare or it might be because we just aren't there in the right place at the right time um we just haven't seen it as human beings and um there is nest defense in lizards from a variety of taxa um so it is like you said it's not widely reported but it comes from a variety of lizards um one example is the um uh large bodied island dwelling lizards in um the big old iguanas they do it it's galapagos land iguanas conolophus pallidus oh i'm sure they're not called that anymore <laughs> oh boy have you opened up a taxonomic can of worms oh no no they are <laughs> they're hilarious they look like they the, a uh, are they the big pink ones they're, they're yellow they're the land ones oh no maybe they are pink yeah I think they are pink as well they're mostly yellow but yeah I think you could say some of these are. they just look like benevolent monks they've got a very kind face but a heart of pure stone they eat spiky fruits yeah anyway they um they defend their nests but there's some thought that they're maybe just defending their nests from other females who might try and take their nesting spot mm. and in galapagos there's not really a lot of predators anyway so you know they're, they're probably, probably quite the chill yeah they're probably just like whatever take my eggs i don't even recognize you as a threat because i'm evolutionarily <laughs> ignorant <laughs> <laughs> Evolutionarily ignorant. <laughs> Isn't it um, sort of like island naive or something like that? Yeah, but... I do like evolutionary ignorant. It makes it sound like the iguanas have deliberately avoided <laughs> <Yeah>. becoming <laughs> more savvy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's more, more to the point. Right, so uh, should we move on to the second paper? Yeah, second paper... This one is also not from Australia. This one uh, is by Pike Clark, uh, Manika, Seng, Su, and Huang. 2016 Surf and Turf, predation by egg-eating snakes has led to the evolution of parental care in a terrestrial lizard, published in Scientific Reports. And this is a rather neat study done on a couple of islands and mainland Taiwan, looking at what is the species, the long-tailed sun skink, Yes, which is so, wonderful. Yeah, Eutropis longicordata, just means yep. long-tailed something. Um, you know what, you, you, it's got a long tail. These lovely sun skinks, they're bumming around on a few islands and mainland Taiwan, um, and really, this study is looking at one specific island as this sort of strange scenario. It's called Orchid Island. And on this island, there is a egg-eating snake called Oligodon uh, formosanus. Yeah, the Formosa kukri snake. Hmm. And these guys love eggs. They and do as well. They really do. They are all about the eggs. M like morning, noon and night. All they think about is that sweet, sweet egg. And it doesn't really matter what type of egg it is. They love lizard eggs, but what they really, really love more than lizard eggs are turtle eggs. Mm. And in fact, this love of turtle eggs is so intense 
that they're one of the few snake species that have demonstrated territorial behaviour defending resources. There's a previous um, Huang paper in 2011 that describes this and basically how they have snake battles to protect their claimed turtle nests. Um, it's absolutely remarkable. It's, it's very, very rare in snakes that you'll see any sort of active territorial defense. You'll see sort of bouts and um, like combat over, over mates or something like that, but it's nearly unheard of to see them fight each other outside of, uh, of a sort of seasonal breeding situation. Yeah, that's Certainly amazing. For resources. It is, yeah. So what are they doing? Are they like, because how, how many turtle eggs can they eat in one sitting? Are they trying to defend the nest so that when they're hungry again, or is it just I think, two No, snakes? I think that's exactly it, yeah. Yeah, because wow. it's, a, it's a seasonal resource, but they can't eat the whole nest in one go, and therefore it is worth defending for, uh, for some time. That's, that is amazing. That's incredible. So um, are they slicing each other with their teeth or are they just... Yeah, it's, it's for weeks at a time. And basically, yeah, it's, it's waving of tails and biting. Biting? Wow. Because, mm. well, I think the idea is that um, bites to the tail are high cost because those, those teeth will mess up males' hemipenes. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. It's intense. Good grief. Good grief. But pretty... Pretty awesome and pretty unique. Yeah. We've talked about kukri snakes a lot, but in case anyone hasn't heard us natter on about their teeth before, they're called kukri snakes because a kukri is a traditional knife in uh, Nepal, right, I think? And um, yeah, they're just crazy long and super sharp and they just slice. So and yeah, yeah, slightly hooked too. They've got a sort of a bend to them, right? Yeah, they've got like a... Yeah, the end of it is like... it's. Um, yeah, like a Stanley blade knife that you'd use to cut through felt or something like that. It's got like the hook on it, so it catches. Mm. Um, horrible, it's horrible. Well, in a lot horrible. of places they use it to pop frogs. In this case, they're using it to uh, slice into eggs. It's quite remarkable, really. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah, the fact that they battle each other—that's quite shocking. It's amazing. It's a shame that it is not so... newer. That would be a really cool podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 here by association with this one. Yeah, and it's. So we've got this this weird scenario already on Orchid Islands. We've got snakes uh, exhibiting an unusual behaviour. We've got this scenario of multiple different resources that they can exploit. And this paper basically starts looking at, okay, we've got this freeway interaction between snakes, lizards and snakes and turtles. How are these three sort of matching up and how... Are changes in one resource connected to the snake's exploitation of another resource. And this paper's sort of more focusing on, okay, these lizards, how are they dealing with, well, a huge density of snakes at the end of the day? And how does that compare to mainland areas? Because mainland areas, these lizards don't defend their nests. That's really the motivator why this island's been picked up as these others. I think they did one island called Green Island, and then they did mainland Taiwan. The lizard species there, or lizard populations, sorry, there, don't defend the nests, which is unbelievably unusual to find a species where you have subpopulations or populations that either do or do not uh, show this parental care. Usually it's a species-level trait, which you won't find too much variation in. So this is a really unique opportunity to see what could be driving that 
and what causes that behavior in this one particular location. Yeah, they really couldn't come up with another example where this was the case, could they? There was really no other perfect natural experiment where an animal was like, yeah. I'm going to parentally care when none of my uh, conspecifics do in a particular place. It's, yeah. It is bonkers. It is bonkers. It's a miraculous study system, really. It um, is. It's, it's got all sorts of weird and wonderful things going on. Hmm. But as you say, Orchid Island, Snake City... And mm. uh, the first thing they wanted to do was to see whether or not there was a genetic basis for this um, behavior. So what they did was they raised 10 females in captivity from Orchid Island, 14 from Greel Island, where there are far fewer snakes, and 12 from mainland Taiwan. And um, yeah, each entered a Thunderdome. Um, they basically just got a snake and let it loose near those near each of those females and looked at how they responded. Exactly the same as the last paper, pretty much. Yeah, you did um, say that... So these females are one generation detached from the ones that they actually got from the islands. Yes. Yeah? So they got the babies and they raised them in captivity. Yeah. Because the point is that the, these individuals have never experienced a snake or nesting or anything be before. Like, there's been yeah. no opportunity to learn. Therefore, the only way they could know what to do or the difference in what they do is genetic or inherited. Yes. So, um, yeah. yeah, they've either got an instinct to battle or they haven't. And as it turns out, the ones from Orchid Island, you know, they went into the Thunderdome, they absolutely cleaned up. Whereas the ones from Taiwan and the ones from Green Island were like, oh, snake, what do I do? Oh, didn't do anything. So um, Completely unprepared. Yeah, so that pretty much case closed. There's a genetic element to this. It's in the genes. The, Which is um, remarkable. It is. It's crazy. So they've obviously at some point evolved a uh, a new trait which their conspecifics elsewhere do not have, which is really cool. And mm. um, so once they were armed with this information, the authors carried on. They did a few more experiments. They looked at the hatching success of lizard eggs in the absence of maternal care. Um, so, yeah, they basically just stopped females guarding their nests on Orchid Island and only 18% succeeded, whereas 62% on Green Island and 52% in t mainland Taiwan survived. So basically, if you take the females away from the eggs, they don't do nearly as well. The other ones aren't defending their nests anyway, so those are just the hatch rates without the females doing anything, which is what the females right. do. But they so, also um, confirm that additionally by having yeah. uh, nests that were unguarded but protected artificially, so they put some some mesh over it or something like that and that I think really sells this point of the ones that were protected on Orchid Island did way better than the ones unprotected but when you went to mainland or Green Island the ones that were artificially protected i.e. sort of as null zero predation chance fared equally as likely or equally as well as the ones that were undefended but open to the elements yeah so the other predators yeah. are like predominantly fungi fungus egg fungus and ants, um, mm. which do get to, uh, you know, a percentage of the eggs, but it's a small percentage. And yeah, when there was no snake predators, the eggs were pretty much fine on Orchid Island, which just, yeah. We, they've created a picture here where the eggs are the menace and the females have evolved a way to deal with them. And, the snakes um, are the menace. The, did I say the eggs are the menace? The eggs, I mean, the eggs are a menace because they demand attention and protection, but really, really, it's the snakes that are, that are causing the issues. Think, I, I don't think we should be egg shaming in this situation, mate. Like, they can't help it. They're born voluptuous and delicious and full of yolk. You can't, yeah. you know. Anyway, 
only the numbers, the only thing which influenced the number of snakes, so they were looking at um, counts of snakes every year, and the only thing that mean, meant there were more snakes was more nests of turtles. Lizard mm. eggs didn't have an effect, which goes to show that the lizard eggs aren't what the snakes are all about. They're only really eating these when there aren't a huge amount of turtle eggs available. And the vast majority of snakes that they caught were moving between the turtle nesting beach and these concrete walls, which are slightly inland, which is where the lizards nest. So um, Yeah, what was it, like 600 metres or something? They're not crazy far from the, uh, from the coast and the turtle nesting beaches, but enough no. to be like, that's a snake that's making a move for a reason, not yeah. just wandering about the place. Yeah. And um, yeah, so basically they've just created this picture of they lizards, these sun skinks found themselves on an island. And um, at some point or another, the island became incredibly densely populated with snakes. And instead of going extinct because of snakes eating all the eggs, they evolved a mechanism by which to defend their eggs, which their counterparts in other populations do not have and do and not exist. And probably don't need. And don't need, yeah, because it would be wasteful. Yeah, because the, the, the unguarded ones were doing just fine. So it really is a, a question of snake density driving the creation of this behavior. Yeah, it's like, you know, the density of turtle eggs increased the density of snakes, tipped the balance in snakes' favor. So the lizards tipped it back by evolving a means of which defending their eggs against these snake menaces, potentially. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, it's a remarkable sort of connection that success of turtles is driving, you know, that it's such a sort of strange connected mechanism, but I really do love it. So you've got turtles doing really well, therefore snakes doing really well, therefore lizards having to counter snakes' success. That's, what a, what a wonderful connection there. Yeah, exactly, it is. It's awesome. It, it just makes perfect sense. All the pieces click into place. But um, I think a little bit's changed in Orchid Island now, hasn't it? Because I think it they has, said somewhere yeah. that um, because of the snakes eating the eggs, they've actually they're actually now um, collecting the eggs and incubating them elsewhere to try and increase turtle survival. Mm. Um, because obviously, oh, turtles, oh, um, <laughs> you know, whatever turtles, but they're rare. Just give me a break. Snakes are way rare. Um, yeah. So now these pesky conservationists have stepped in to try and save the green turtle because they're so charismatic, so majestic. Have you seen one in the water? Oh my gosh, spiritual occasion. Do one. Um, uh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean it. Everyone loves turtles, don't they? They're universally yeah, it, loved. It is a real question. Okay, so the turtle resources are no longer accessible to the snakes. Now, what does this actually lead to? Does it lead to a decrease in snake density in line with the sort of availability of lizard resources or sort of does the snake density lag so it stays higher for a little bit longer and has some sort of big negative impact on the the lizard uh, nesting success something like that is there going to be when you've got this situation that's so very directly interconnected quite a big uh, change like the removal of an entire resource that they're saying is pretty much the driving force behind this interaction and between two super interesting and unique behaviours, both in the territoriality of those cookery snakes and the nest guarding behaviour of these lizards, what's going to what's going to change? Is it going to change? Are they going to sort of have that pressure relaxed um, no. with no. the cookeries, forget the is... territoriality, or is it going to supercharge it? 
Well, at least for a time, the snakes are going to be hungry and, and alive. So they're going to be wanting lizard eggs. So at the very least, those lizard mothers are going to have to work a hell of a lot harder to defend their nests, presumably. Right. Um, but yeah, as you say, into the future, who knows? Um, yeah, it would be a shame. Yeah, Because you might just lose that snake density because of... I mean, the implication is that it's the turtle resource driving that density, not the lizards. The lizards are only used outside of the turtle nesting season. Yeah, and the um, the authors actually liken that influx of nutrients that the turtle eggs provide almost to like a salmon run or something like that. Like there's this yeah. small local terrestrial ecosystem adrift in a sea of the ocean. And, um, you know, a lot of the nutrient cycle that's going on is because the turtles are coming on shore and laying their eggs. Like I wouldn't be surprised if there was quite serious consequences for the ecosystem as a whole because if these snakes are eating, you know, what must be hundreds and hundreds of turtle eggs mm. and then pooing out the nutrients on the land, like that's yep. got to be a pretty major part of the nutrient cycle locally. So I don't know. It is. It's, it's something that's been recognized in other places with high snake uh, densities. Um, I think there's a a Wilson paper about aquatic snakes in uh, either aquatic agriculture or just aquatic systems that give an estimate of the l- amount of energy that aquatic snakes are pulling from aquatic ecosystems onto terrestrial ecosystems. And it is a big um, energy flow. Yeah. And you take you take from that, you are going to change things. There's, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I joke about turtles. Obviously, I love turtles. But um, yeah, I think somewhere like this, which is probably quite a delicate island ecosystem, taking away all those turtle eggs as prey could potentially be a little bit damaging. Yeah. I suppose the alternative view is that this oligodon species might be widespread and easily conservable in other places and therefore deprioritized on this particular island. Yeah, I know. I'm just biased because I think snakes are cooler than turtles. But it's also doing territorial behavior, which is super unique in snakes. And it's a shame to potentially rob the world of seeing territorial snake behavior, which is just yeah. downright neat. What's that? What is it? Um, what's that initiative? Um, biologically and biologically something in genet- evolutionarily unique, whatever it is. That- evolutionarily distinct and... Edge, yeah, evolutionary distinct and endangered, globally endangered, yeah. That's the so one, globally endangered. That's the gene. edge, yeah. surely, yeah. You'd think if you were looking at things like that, like this oligodon, you know, going ham, battling other oligodons, that's got to be pretty evolutionarily distinct. Remember the paper I brought up at the end of the, um, at the end of I don't know, a couple of episodes ago. Yeah, that's what's made me think of it. Yeah, yeah. So that's what their sort of criticism was: is those oligodons probably aren't particularly special from a phylogenetic point of view but they are quite interesting and special from a trait or functional point of view so Mm. it really depends on where you're placing that value what is evolutionary evolutionarily distinct is it from a genetic point of view or is it from a behavior and functional point of view can't it just be yes it can just be yes Mm. but at the end of the day you have to be explicit in the decision why you're picking one species to protect over the other and not knowing much about one probably isn't a good enough reason. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, our grandchildren are going to want to know why they can't see snakes battling but they can see stupid turtles. <laughs> <laughs> now, what we really need to do is basically hyperbreed the turtles so you can have both. So you can have some turtles 
And you can have loads of snakes eating the turtle eggs. Mm-hmm. But that's Perfect. really tricky. <laughs> and the Oligodon formosanus, they're also orange, which is another reason that they should be allowed to live. Yeah. I'm not going to debate that. Best colour going, so. Um, I think that's it, right? I think so. I, I Both of those papers, super, super interesting and really, mm. really neat. Um, mainly just the, the novelty of parental care in reptiles is such a big deal that yeah, recording it anyway is interesting and exciting and fun um did we really we never talked about the trade-offs because we got these sort of non-parental care lizards in green and mainland taiwan never really said why that would be the case and it basically comes down to defending your nest requires energy it's time that you're not foraging it's behavior that requires energy and is potentially risky if you're dealing with predators you may get injured um so there is a sort of default selective pressure not to do this and i think that's what also makes these behaviors when you do see it all the more remarkable because it's having to overcome those costs and gain an active benefit Um, yeah it's a double whammy yeah yeah they have to be really really committed and uh take risks for the good of their babies Although they do say in this paper that the ligodons tend not to eat lizards and they sort of specialise in eggs. So it yeah, sounds a little fit. bit like the lizards are somewhat impervious to uh, to the snakes and can just sort of but, get in yeah, the way if, and batter them out or, you know, push them off. If a ligodon meant it, it could slice them up. I mean, you'd imagine so, wouldn't you? I mean, the ligodons yeah. can slice through a lot of stuff. If they can get through a sort of robust turtle egg... Yeah. I don't know, maybe the sun skinks yeah. are, too, are too smart for that. I've, really, I've, I've, seen, I've seen a Ligodon bite on a person, it wasn't very nice. Yeah. Let alone a little lizard. Yeah, but you know, we're not scaly, or tend not to be scaly. Yeah, true, and we don't have eggs to think of. Mm. I've not had an Ligodon try and steal any of my eggs. I'd be furious. <laughs> what if it was an orange Ligodon, though? You'd give it, give it a free pass, wouldn't you? You can have one egg. All right. I'm not having it hanging around, treating my eggs as its territory and defending them from others. Because <laughs> that just wind me up. <laughs> all, these, all these snake battles happening in your kitchen. Oh, not again. Come on. It'd just be so annoying. Yeah, no, it's not about that. So, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Lizards defending their nests in quite a rudimentary way. Um, but, you know, it's but succeeding. It's cool. Yeah. yeah nice different perspective on lizards um and so because we've been talking about lizards for an hour i think it's only fair that our species of the bye week is a lizard i mean it has to be really doesn't it it does yeah so this paper is by avila perez noguera and martins 2019 fresh off the press a new horned stenocircus from the island from the highlands from the highlands of southeastern Brazil and redescription of Stenocircus tricristatus, published in Zoologia. Mm. And we're in Brazil, southeastern Brazil, yep. Serra da Canastra National Park in the state of Minas Gerais. Gosh, I can't pronounce these words. Sorry. And uh, yeah, we're describing a new species called uh, Stenocircus. Canastra. And it's called Lizard. Yeah, so we picked this guy because it, well, looks like a lizard that could defend itself if it needed to, right? 
That was it. Does that was I'm the not motivation? Sure it can. I'm not sure it actually can, but it looks the business. Well, I mean, it's got to have those horns for some reason. Spiky, spiky. Yeah, it could just be showing off. It could just be showing off. Yes. <laughs> but they're very cool animals. They've got crazy patterns. Their patterns don't make any sense. Um, yes, but just... yet, yet we are going to attempt to describe them. Yeah. So it's got a long, thin body. <laughs> which is kind of bulky lizard face <laughs> stripey mottledy it yeah looks you've like... got stripes down the sides and then like uh, sort of rings along the top perhaps half rings yeah I would actually say that it kind of looks like the patterning of a royal python that would be my reptile analogy there we go that works yeah and um, yeah, like mad horns on the head, very short, blunt head. Um, it's got spikes all over the place. It's got spiky arms. It's got spiky back. It's got spiky sides. It's got spiky chin. Um, yeah, nice brown and band. brown and grey, sort of mm. warmer yellowiness to it. Yeah. Um, How big is it? Big enough. Big enough. Yes. Yeah. Seventy-seven millimeters SVL yeah. max. In male millimeters, yeah, and sixty-five for females. Yeah, only one female found though, so it could be that the females are bigger. That's just a small one. Could be. We don't know. And it's um, all described on the basis of morphometrics and scalation, isn't it? No genetics in this paper whatsoever, which um, some of our listeners will probably have something to say about. Maybe. Um, yeah, not an ideal situation by any stretch. Um, although they did use a lot of morphological characters and I think um, they're, they are ge- geographically distinct from the other species that they're talking about this one's been kind of a confusing subject there's been samples since the 1800s in museums um, but they just haven't been correctly identified yeah I feel like that's where quite a lot of these new species come from they're buried away in some museum then they're sort of wheeled back out because somebody's studying one of one of the species of many, and I'm like, wait a second, this one looks completely different from those museum specimens supposedly being the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And to be fair, I mean, just looking at the pictures, they do look pretty different. Yeah, they do. And that's that's from an untrained, ignorant eye. Yeah, you know a bit about lizards. <laughs> I really like I? the original um, Bibron drawing. Yeah, it's got attitude, doesn't it? I actually have a few of... Um, uh, sorry, did I say... I meant Doomerel. Oh, it's Doomerel and Bibron. <laughs> there you it. go. Oh, here we go. Subsequently, Doomerel com- complemented the description of S. triscatus tricristatus with a colour drawing of the animal on a rocky substrate, thereby illustrating its colour pattern in detail. Yeah, so I think I have a couple of his drawings as prints of like the description of a boa constrictor and Nile monitor. They're really cool. In nice. exactly that same style, yeah. Yeah, my brother got me them for my birthday, they're wicked. Cool, cool. What else do we have? We have where the name came from. Um, basically, it's referring to the mountains where it was found. Nice and simple. Yeah, they, um, they're found in this open... Is it Corrado or Cerrado? You always go back yeah. and forth on this one. It's Probably like a grassland. Cerrado, grassland, shrubland, with um, dense grassy vegetation on deep, well-drained soil. And they like quite high elevations, between 1,350 and 1,410 metres. And they get eaten by maned wolves. Which is a dog on stilts. But pretty much, yeah. They're awesome. Yeah, they are bonkers. 
Um, and they can survive fires. If there's a fire, they go inside a termite mound, and that makes them easier to find and catch if you're a scientist. Hmm. Which is pretty convenient for them. Pretty polite yeah. little lizard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they reckon it's probably least concern um, in terms goodness. of IUCN red list, because it occurs in a massive park. But the land rights are a bit confused in part of the park, so that could all come tumbling down. And uh, Hey, yeah. but we don't need to think about that. Yeah, no, but like also just the general trend in Brazil towards like cutting down all the forests at the moment. It's probably not good for anything there. But um, Yeah, but it doesn't live in forests. It lives in shrubland stuff, so... Burn it. <laughs> <laughs> it can survive Put, the fires, though. The, the termite mounds. Oh, yeah, the cows will step on the termite mounds and ruin their little houses. Yeah. Yeah. That is what it is. Um, yeah, but that's a cool new little species. Google it. It's Stenocircus canastra. You won't be disappointed. It's fun to look at. Yeah. Cool. Um, right. Any other business? Uh, I have zero other business, but I believe I believe we have some feedback about slimy salamanders. <laughs> yes, we do. Right. You got um, that prepped? Yes, I have. So, um, before we get into that, Miles Masterson, going back a couple of episodes from when we were talking about um, nest guarding in pythons, he said colubrids from the genus Ferrancia are well known to sit on their eggs, which are kind of like rainbow snakes. Um, there's two species, the rainbow snake and the mud snake. So, Oh, for goodness yeah. sake. I'm sorry. You're going to have to spell that out for me because I need to see this so-called rainbow snake. Uh, it's basically a sunbeam snake that lives in America. Well, how do we spell this? Ferrancia erythrogramma. They are pretty damn jazzy, to be fair. They're actually ridiculous. Hmm. They are wonderful. Yeah, they are. I would have called those magma snakes or something, but but they're pretty rainbowy. Yeah, the other one, the mud I, snake, is actually equally as beautiful. It's I just, just... We have an issue with snakes and common names because... Over here, we have rainbow water snakes, mud snakes, and sunbeam snakes, and stuff like that. That are all kind of rainbowy, muddy, and stripy and whatnot. Then we got this guy that looks unbelievably similar, called something almost identical, but it's completely different. It's in a completely different continent. Um, mm -hmm. Some of these pictures look like in Hydrus in Hydrus. Mate, and if you look at Ferrancia abacura, it literally just looks like Cylindrophus rufus. It's the same animal, just in a different place. It's actually uncanny, even abacura. down to the patination. Yeah, yeah. There's some freaky convergent evolution going on right here. If you live in the mud, get a stripy red belly. <laughs> All I'm saying is that the term mud snake is not a great common name. There are lots of things called mud snakes. Rainbow snake, equally unhelpful. Snake itself, wonderful. 10 out of 10. Name, bad. But anyway, they sit on their eggs. That's pretty cool. So I wonder if yeah. Cylindrophus do it over here. Just because they look the same, maybe maybe they behave the same. Do they? Do they? Are they viviparous or oviparous? I have no idea. And you can barely see them, let alone understand yeah, what they, they do. Cylindrophus rufus actually give birth to live young. Oh my... Well, this this is just... They look the same, but have completely different lifestyles. Nothing... Well, not completely nothing, different. Nothing can... I don't know. I don't know what my point's going to be. Crazy. Nothing um, can compare to Cylindrophus Rufus. That's what nah, your point's going to be, original, and you're correct. 
The original sausage boy. Oh boy, what a snake. What, what a hero. Ah, oh, that was a good day. <laughs> uh, we caught a sausage boy. We caught a pipe snake and called it sausage boy because it was literally exactly the same size and shape as a sausage. And it was just a hilarious creature that didn't make any sense. It was very I think exciting. it was also the first cylindrophus any of us had seen. So it was yeah. just... I think it just blew our minds a little bit. It did, yeah. It really is unlike other snakes. Just, yeah. Very entertaining creature. Extremely endearing, quizzical face. <laughs> Hilarious red tail. Yeah. Really pre- quite beautiful. Um, so, yeah, other stuff. More other business. Penny McAdams on Twitter sent us an awesome photo of a rock python mating ball that she saw in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, which I retweeted, which is mental. It's like four, four-ish males clambering all over her. A female, um, which is very exciting. So um, that was one that we were kind of on the fence about, right? Like we weren't one hundred percent sure that they actually were doing mating balls, as far as right. I recall. Um, but I was that definitely mean, not sure. That to me looks like a mating ball, so that's super cool. Um, so thank you, Penny, for sending that, and uh, check out our Twitter if you want to see that photo. So Miles Masterson, in addition to telling us that colubrids from the genus Francia sit on their eggs, also mentioned that. Slimy salamanders are extremely slimy. He's actually had personal experience with them. He won't even pick them up if he sees one because they're so slimy. And um, <laughs> and we know that Miles, and he that loves shouldn't, he, that shouldn't be a that shouldn't be a thing. That shouldn't like <laughs> that just <laughs> that's a classic like herpetology herpes sort of uh, like I don't even pick it up. Like I get it, I get it. But <laughs> That should not be the standard. <laughs> I see animal, I pick it up. It's like, yeah, you gotta pick I don't up. even pick up lions. I don't yeah. even. But I get it. Yeah. <laughs> it just um, makes me it makes me laugh. And apparently he's heard rumours that they're even so slimy that rattlesnakes can have their mouths glued shut by them. Which is... Uh, wow. Well, it's very reminiscent of a, an old wives' tale, but it could well be true. Um, Remember kids, uh, don't put the salamanders in your mouth because you won't be able to eat your dinner. Yeah, and then we had Bryce, who uh, tweets at Primordial Goo, said, Gotta say, the plethodon glutinosus slime is very sticky from doing some undergraduate volunteer work. I've had it stuck on my hands for three days before I was eventually able to get it all off. So that's Bryce. Thanks, Bryce. Very sticky. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, And then we had Eric Tightsworth getting touched. Again, I'm pretty sure you shouldn't be touching amphibians with bare hands. Ben, you've got to get over this. People are going to be touching the amphibians. We need to learn about how sticky they are. Yeah, I'm just saying... Wear gloves. They're really susceptible diseases. We have a big disease problem going on with our amphibians. They just discovered that... Um, they just showed that uh, toads in Switzerland are having a tough time from some, like, skin lesion-producing toad herpes or something. Yeah. You make Looks you nasty, point. dude. I'm just... I'm just saying. Mm. I'm just saying. Um, so, Eric Tightsworth also got in touch. He agreed that naming a salamander slimy is not a good shout since they're all slimy. <laughs> but this one is super slimy. He said they exude slime from their entire body, seemingly a lot from the tail, and it's almost glue-like. He said once you get dirt in there, your hands are stained and sticky until you get a chance to give them a good scrub. So more evidence to say it's sticky. And then finally, we had an email from uh, Tim Timmy Songer, and he said, yes, they are exceptionally slimy, and he said it's a thick slime that he's not experienced with any other salamanders, and it's extremely difficult to get off your hands. He also avoids picking them up, 
After handling one, the slime tends to dry on your hands in a few minutes, and even washing with soap and water, and even with scrubbing, it's difficult to remove. And it doesn't come off in a single wash. So, yeah. So, you know, perhaps the name glutinosis is justified. We're talking about, um, what is it? Plethodon glutinosis, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so just for anyone who didn't hear the last episode, there's a slimy salamander called Plethodon glutinosis, and we were comparing it with other salamanders, and we were like, why is it named the slimy salamander? Well, as you've just heard, it's extremely slimy. And all those people who messaged us also said nice things about the podcast, so thank you very much for the kind oh, words. Oh, thank, thank you for the details of this slimy salamander, because that is just... I mean, it's, it's incredible. And what I'm thinking is, is anybody studying the actual compounds that this salamander produces because there's something crazy interesting going on there. If you're saying it, it gets stuck on your hands and then it sort of dries onto it, that's remarkable. That's like actual glue. That's not just sticky, gooey mess. That's that's something that's changing over time and reacting to to being on hands and or the environment. And I presume yeah. that it doesn't sort of dry up and make the salamander get stuck to things. Otherwise, it'd be it'd be kind of useless. Well, they just, just keep be, producing more goo. Like a and slug. then sort of getting rid of it so they don't get stuck to something. I would imagine so. Yeah. I can't say for sure. I've never seen one. I hadn't even heard of them before last week. Absolutely remarkable. I'm really happy that people had first-hand experience with them and we can learn this. I'm really happy yeah, with that. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm really impressed that our listener base has got such a wide-ranging experience with touching slimy animals. <laughs> <laughs> it's no surprise, but it's nice yep. to hear. That's, um, that's what we asked for, and that's exactly what we got. Yeah, so it's thank brilliant. you, everyone. Um, yeah, and uh, I think that's about it for this episode, is it not? I, can't, I haven't got anything else to add, as far as I can see. Everything I had was mostly just about slimy salamanders. Yeah, no, I, I don't have anything fresh or crazy or interesting going on um yeah i think that's i think that's another episode in the bag nice one all right well um i haven't said it for a while so if you'd like to contribute to the podcast if you're enjoying it um patreon.com slash herp highlights is where you can donate a little bit of money a month and you'll get benefits out of that um you might get to pick an episode topic or something like that for something you're particularly interested in whatever it might be um we also sell t-shirts and stuff on redbubble if you just google herp highlights redbubble you'll find us and um i always hear on podcasts people saying can you leave us a review it will help us so try that out (laughs) leave us a review please we have absolutely no evidence that it helps us or not (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah i had to add that caveat otherwise ben would have so uh yeah Maybe, maybe a very nice review but yeah aside from that um, we're on facebook.com slash herp highlights we tweet at herp highlights and is that it oh yeah you can get in touch with us via email herp highlights at gmail.com yeah yeah I think that's pretty much it isn't it I think yeah, we so, just... um, yeah thanks for listening thank you for listening The cookery snakes have sharp, slicey teeth.